Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Sam Buckberry from the Telethon Kids Institute on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the University of Adelaide in 2015. You then moved on to do a postdoc with Ryan Lister at the University of Western Australia from 2015 to 2021. After that, you moved on to the Telethon Kids Institute, where you are head of the epigenetics group in the Indigenous Genomics Group. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? So you might say I didn't follow the typical path into academic research. Um, although some of my earliest memories are of wanting to be a scientist, even though I really didn't know what a scientist did when I was that young. Um, I had the typical kids' chemistry sets and microscopes and was really into dismantling computers and electronics to understand how they worked. Um But I really wasn't a great student at school. Um, I didn't find the school environment uh, engaging at all. Um, and I ended up not finishing high school. I, I just wanted to be productive and outworking. Um, so after leaving school, I spent the best part of the next decade uh, working in the wine industry, uh, mainly in vineyard management and grape growing and, and a bit of winemaking. Um, but looking back, I took a very scientific approach to the process. <laughs> I was meticulous in record keeping and measurement, and um, it was a really great kind of synergy of botany and chemistry and ecosystem management. But throughout all of those years, I was a really avid reader of popular science books, and I was a bit of a citizen scientist, I guess. Um, so when I was 27, uh, I decided to go to university and study science, not really knowing where that was going to lead. Um, so I enrolled in a Bachelor of Environmental Science. Um, and the first year of that degree had a lot of earth sciences and geology and hydrology topics, which were interesting, but I didn't really find captivating. Um, but I had this amazing lecturer, uh, Karen Berkta-Silver, for Biological Evolution and the Molecular Basis of Life. And um, once we got into the game theory aspects of evolutionary genetics, I guess I was hooked. And um, I was pretty quick to change my degree program to um, major in biology and genetics after that. And I ended up doing a summer internship in Karen's lab, studying the evolution of um, tropical clownfish and sea anemone sea, um, symbiosis. And it was then that I learned from Karen what it took to have a career in research. And um, I'm really not sure I would have found this path without her encouragement and mentorship. Um, so it was then really understood like what post-grad research was and what it meant to do a PhD. Um, so I went on to do an honors degree and a PhD in a placental biology lab at the University of Adelaide. And that's, uh, to me, the placenta was a super fascinating organ from an evolutionary perspective, um, especially with imprinted genes. And, and that's when I got interested in DNA methylation. Um, so during my PhD, I was, uh, I was following... Um, some of the work of Ryan Lister, who was at the Salk Institute at the time in Joe Ecker's lab, and he was publishing some of the first genome-wide DNA methylation studies. 
And I thought, okay, wow, um, this is where the whole field's going. And uh, when I learned Ryan was um, had returned to Australia and set up his own lab, uh, I reached out and discussed doing a postdoc. Um, his lab was pretty new at that time. So I ended up doing um, postdoc in his lab for nearly seven years and worked on some really amazing projects, um, some of which I'm sure you're keen to discuss today. Yeah, so I reached out to Ryan, but he's super busy. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a super busy guy. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the science, and you already uh, touched upon it. Um, and uh, we will come to 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 some of those those parts. Um, and uh, let's start as we always do in the beginning. And I think uh, mm -hmm. you mentioned. I don't think that you mentioned the year, but it was 2012 when your first paper was published. I guess. Um, and as you mentioned, you were interested in imprinted gene in the placenta. Uh, and uh, in humans, uh, H19 and HF2 are imprinted, but the imprinting of IGF2R remains controversial, as you are mentioning in the abstract of this paper. And mm -hmm. to better understand this um, imprinting in a placenta, you um, quantified a little specific expression of those three genes in the first trimester and the term placentae by pyrosequencing, which was uh, fancy at that time, maybe not so much anymore. Um, but maybe mm, can you talk yeah. about uh, the study specifically because you already talked about how you get got started with your PhD. Ah, uh, yeah. So um, that was that first paper came out of my honors year. Um, so that was a, a very much of a pressure cooker of a year, kind of nine months to do uh, like a major project. And so I was working in this lab and they had a big buy bank of uh, first trimester pl placentas, which are quite difficult to come by you know it's very rare samples and um so yeah that whole project was about kind of studying this allele specific expression and then allele specific dna methylation um and i think from memory so this is going back over 10 years now uh the the field was quite adamant um about how imprinting worked for this h19 igf2 locus And we started seeing with some of our data that, yeah, um, IGF-2 was really strongly imprinted, that it was sort of uh, the expression was most definitely from one allele and, and not the other. Um, just using uh, sn SNPs in the, in the genes, we had enough samples to find heterozygous um, SNPs so we could measure allele-specific expression. But then when we looked at H19, we could see this sort of imprinting plasticity where we had this leaky expression from one of the alleles. Um, And that's when we started, that's when I first got into DNA methylation there, like trying to, to work out um, what was driving that leaky expression. Um, and that was our first foray into doing this, this pyro sequencing and designing those um, assays. I guess, yeah, like you said, not many people are doing now. And we found some methylation differences there, but we really didn't nail the mechanism. Um, I was actually keen to follow up on that a bit more. But, um, Ended up then going from that project into doing um, some RNA-seq stuff because that's where the whole field seemed to have been going. And uh, that project led into my PhD to do, we were going to do the human placental transcriptome as my PhD project. But I think within three months of starting my PhD, that got published <laughs> and was scooped. And oh. had to kind of reinvent the project oh, no. <laughs> from that point forward. Yeah, <laughs> That's kind of the worst uh, scenario that you could look at especially at the start of your PhD. But I wanted to yeah. mention one other paper that I found really interesting because it was kind of, 
I don't know, maybe a side project or something that is more a tool than science, because you were able to determine the sex of samples from gene expression data. Um, and you uh, kind yeah. of, of did, uh, I don't know if it's just a, a library for for um, for bioinformatics or whatever it is, but why was this necessary and how did it help you? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So I did this... Um so my PhD started out where we were kind of doing the placental transcriptome and wanted to do have a look at sex bias gene expression, which is a big part of that study. And this was kind of in the earlier days of RNA-seq and the, the service provider we were using had these massive delays with their high-seq. And I ended up not getting that data for about a year. So I was you know, pretty into bioinformatics and thought, well, all right, I'm going to go onto um, Geo and download all of the placental gene expression data sets that I can get my hands on. And I just want to have a look at what, what the placental transcriptome looks like from all this microarray data, and then have a look what sex bias gene expression looks like from a meta-analysis perspective. But then when I started digging into all the Geo data, um, I noticed that a lot of it was not annotated properly. And then when I was like looking at the expression of some of the sex chromosome genes, I could see some of the, the samples were actually in a, incorrectly annotated with the, um, the sex of the sample. So like you said, it was actually a bit of a side project where I um, started playing around with different clustering techniques using um, uh, like sex chromosome probes on the microarray data and found a way where you could pretty accurately predict the sex of a sample. So then I could go through and download all of these um, samples from Geo, re-annotate them, and then that gave me enough power to do a meta-analysis. I think we ended up doing over 300 samples in that meta-analysis over quite a number of studies where we could reproducibly show you got this sex-biased gene expression in the human placenta. So you're right, it was it was actually a really cool side project that ended up in being a little bioconductor package and this over a decade ago and there's still people out there using it now much to my surprise as a qc tool interesting where where's the, those side projects end up finally <laughs> yeah so you already talked about that you wanted to characterize like the differences in in sex uh, or in sex biased gene expression in the human placenta and this is exactly mm -hmm. what you did in the, in the next paper so can you maybe talk about what you did there and and what you found Yeah, so that was, um, like I said, it was a big study uh, as in like pulling in all these different data sets to try and look at what was reproducible across a lot of studies. Um, so then with that meta-analysis, we identified there was a, a cluster of genes. I think it was the CHV cluster of genes, um, which were different between the sexes, which um, encode uh, some of the hormones that are really uh, critical to placenta and placental development and pregnancy. Um, these are the hormones you would, from my understanding, if you do a, like a blood test for pregnancy, these are the ones you would de detect in the bloodstream. And we saw um, a, a really distinct sex bias that was reproducible across um, different studies and different labs in different data sets. So that that like kind of led us to dig into a bit like what's going on here. And um, from a placental biology perspective, from my understanding, there's... Um, a bit of a sex bias in the presentation of pregnancy complications like preeclampsia, which have their origins in placental development. And it seems um, from some of our reasoning there that, um, and other studies that have come out since, that uh, males 
tend to take a bit more of a risky approach or kind of biological risky approach to development in utero. And that could be driven by some of these uh, increased expression of hormones where they're trying to, through those that increased expression, draw more resources from the mother, um, which can result in a kind of a, a riskier strategy to development. So... The next paper that I found, <laughs> uh, and I, I'm I'm not sure if if I understood it correctly, because you you were working on co-expression of RNAs, and you did RNA sequencing and integrated multiple mm -hmm. transcriptome datasets spanning human gestation. And uh, I'm not sure what the co-expression meant. Did you correlate all RNAs together and see who what which RNAs are expressed together? And because this is a hu pretty uh, huge data set, then. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly um, how it works. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so that's a method from um, uh, Steve Horvath's lab, who uh, oh. you know also developed these DNA methylation clocks. So he's this um, tool called um, weighted gene co-expression networks. We basically take all of the genes, and then you can um, find all of the genes that are correlated together. Um, and then you can take the first principal component as it does in that software as a kind of a metagene proxy to, to look at um, the expression of uh, a whole heap of genes. So you can kind of take one measurement that predicts the expression of many genes. So in doing that process, you can kind of reduce the dimensions a lot of a data set. You can say we take these 26,000 genes. We look for the ones that are highly correlated and then you can build these modules then that are these co-expression modules when you build these co-expression modules you can do the typical things like looking at the ontology terms and things that are associated with the genes there but then look at how they how reproducible they are in um, different samples uh, different data sets and and different species so what we found there is there were some Uh, like a, a module of co-expressed genes that we found that was uh, reproducible between um, human data sets um, from the ones we generated in our lab. We had some RNA-seq from another study, um, ended up collaborating with one of the labs that um, published the first placental transcriptomes. And then um, we could also show that you could reproduce some of these co-expression modules in mouse as well, and then found that some of these modules were... Um, these genes were consistently uh, changing in pregnancies impacted by preeclampsia. So that was sort of the um, the side project that came out of getting scooped for the PhD work. And, um, you know, I'd already, I was on the pathway to generating all of this uh, human placenta transcriptome data. And um, as part of your PhD, you have to come up with something novel <laughs> and I had to kind of reinvent my path with the same data set. So that it was, um, it actually took a while to finish that one, but uh, it ended up being quite an interesting study. So later then in 2017, and this is now with Ryan Lister, and you also switched gears a little bit then by moving to his lab. Um, you looked at transcription factors that drive reprogramming and how this is connected to chromatin structure roughly mm. and you characterize the dna regulatory landscape during reprogramming by time cost profiling of isolated subpopulation of intermediates uh, poised to become ipscs um so how was the switch to 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 ryan's lab uh, was it based on like the science or on the person 
And um, what did you find then about uh, those IPSCs? Yeah. So yeah, moving to Ryan's lab was a huge switch for me. Um, it was the the learning curve was super steep. You know, going from working in microarray data and then into gene expression data, which is is challenging bioinformatically, or it was then, but um, there was nothing compared to moving into doing whole genome DNA methylation with ChIP-seq and RNA-seq um, at a really high capacity. Um, but like I said, the learning curve was steep, but it was a lot of fun. Um, I knew from pretty early on I wanted to work with sequencing data. I wanted to be doing the whole genome DNA methylation stuff, and Ryan kind of threw me in the deep end there, which was great. And <laughs> And uh, we teamed up with uh, Jose Polo's group for that project. Um, and we met at, it was the Lawn Genome Conference. It must have been in um, 2015 or 2016. And we got together and had this idea. We wanted to characterize uh, reprogramming uh, really comprehensively. So just as a bit of a backstory from that, um, Jose Polo was, he was working on reprogramming at, at Harvard and came back to Australia and started a lab and Ryan was at the Salk Institute, um, and he did some work with iPS cells on epigenetic memory in his postdoc. And they kind of both around the same time showed that um, reprogrammed fibroblasts retained this um, epigenetic memory of the cell they were once were and, and were different to embryonic stem cells. And they kind of got together and instead of um, competing on trying to solve that problem, decided to collaborate. And so being uh, one of Ryan's uh, new postdocs, I teamed up with a postdoc um, in Jose's lab to start um, really trying to characterize the reprogramming process in depth. Um, so for that paper, I teamed up with a, a great postdoc in Jose's lab, Anya Naup, who did all the, the cell sorting and all the meticulous um, biology for um, sorting out these reprogramming intermediates, like you said. And then we, um, we did uh, ChIP-seq on these um, reprogrammed cells, so going from the fibroblasts, the day three, day seven, day 12, like right through to these iPS cells, and did whole genome DNA methylation and RNA-seq and tried to bring it all together to understand how these um, OCT4, SOX2, KLF4, and CMYK drive reprogramming. So you did ChIP-seq for those four factors? Yeah, I don't. we didn't do... The, I'm pretty sure we didn't do CMYK mm -hmm. chip in that paper. We just did OCT4, SOX2, and KLA4. Or, um, yeah, so we did the time course chip seek there and attack seek on those. And uh, and what we learned from that study was that uh, as you introduce these reprogramming factors, or um, what some people call pioneer factors, they kind of they come in and start to remodel the chromatin um, that that process happens in two waves. Um, so they come in and there's some chromatin remodeling and some, uh, when you look at the ataxic data, some regions become quite open um, and accessible to the transcription factors to bind there. Um, and then those areas are kind of the chromatin shuts down and then another subset of regions opens back up again. So there's this like two-wave process, which was a bit unexpected for us. And we found that um, the OKSM factors come in and they actually displace other transcription factors at open chromatin sites. And then it seems that those transcription factors can then move to these other regions that open up later in reprogramming. So that was kind of really my first 
attempt at um, doing a large multi-omics study on this kind of thing, and it um, ended up being quite a cool study. So <laughs> I'm just trying to wrap my hand around the question, because how is the, 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 the timely connection between factors binding and chromatin structure changing? I yeah. mean, so the correlation between basically the chipseq data and the ataxic data, that's basically then the, the technical terms then. Yeah, uh, that ends up being a really hard question to tease out. So I think what you're getting at is the the pioneer effect of when does the transcription factor bind and when does the chromatin then open up? And when does and, transcription and, and, start? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't have the data to to really tease that apart. but. From memory in that paper too, um, if you look really deep in some of the attack seek data, you can get the nuclear zone positioning from the attack data. And we could see um, in a subset of the reads that you get um, you get a chip seek signal right on top of where a nuclear zone was, and then the nuclear zones get displaced around there. So we definitely we had that kind of like that pioneer effect happening. And I'm not sure where the field's at now, but I think it was like still a bit divided, like whether or not um, OCT4 and SOX2 were pioneer factors. Um, obviously, some people definitely um, think they are. Um, we couldn't really nail that question with our data, but it, it did seem to be happening. But again, like you say, like when when the factors come in, when the chromatin changes or when transcription starts, that's, that's a challenging question. But what we did learn from that, though, And what we've also seen in other studies is the DNA methylation change happens much later. Mm -hmm. um, so we see that the transcription factors coming in, the chromatin changing, and it wasn't really until, if you kind of average it all out, the next time point when you see the methylation change. So methylation appeared to be this reinforcing mechanism, reinforcing the chromatin state and not actually what was driving it. So this was bulk data, right? This was not single cell data. No, it wasn't single cell data, but it was all fact sorted for um, mm -hmm. stage specific markers. So um, Jose's lab had previously done a heap of work looking at um, identifying markers of very particular um, reprogramming intermediate time points. So we could sort on these very specific markers. Um, and from my understanding, it takes a lot of cells to do some of this sorting. There's, there's incubators full of cells just to sort them down to these very specific reprogramming intermediates. Yeah. So we could do that time course study. Now, I think, so that was in 2017. I think if you redid that study these days, you'd definitely be doing it single cell. Mm. Uh, it really wasn't an option back then. And finally, just last year, you were first author on a nature paper, and this was the paper that caught my attention, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> uh, the epigenomes of human-induced pluripotent stem cells and human embryonic stem cells differ significantly, as you slightly touched upon, um, which affects the, the cell function. Um, these differences include epigenetic memory and aberrations that emerge during the reprogramming process for which the mechanisms remain unknown. In this paper, you characterized the persistence and emergence of exactly those epigenetic differences. Um, can you talk about this study and what you found? Yeah, so uh, that was a very long and very fun and interesting project. <laughs> It was super challenging. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so with that project, I uh, initially um, teamed up with uh, Shandong Lu, who was a postdoc uh, who he was he was a phd student in jose polo's lab at 
when we first started and um, moved on to being a postdoc. And again, we uh, did this uh, time course study of uh, looking at reprogramming this time in human cells. That last paper we just discussed was uh, in mouse that we published in Cell Stem Cell. Um, but for this nature paper, uh, we also, in human reprogramming, we have this difference with mouse uh, where we have the um, what they call primed and naive reprogramming. And that's where this naive media, um, if the cells are grown in it, the tend to have more of a pre-implantation state of um, very low DNA methylation. And then um, we also, and reprogrammed cells in primed media have this kind of post-implantation state of much higher DNA methylation. So we set out to do this time course study then of uh, reprogramming, going from fibroblasts to iPS cells in both the primed and naive media um, to then understand uh, the basis of epigenetic memory. So like you touched on, um, you can take uh, a human fibroblast and reprogram it into an iPS cell, and that functionally is largely equivalent to an embryonic stem cell, as far as I know. And But it still has these kind of molecular signatures of the cell it once was, and you know, it's been several studies have shown that, and both uh, Jose and Ryan had, had shown that in their postdoc work. So the first thing we want to do there is understand the nature of that memory and also of these epigenetic aberrations that appear during reprogramming. That is, when you when you force the expression of the OKSM reprogramming factors, it seems to be that uh, the reprogrammed cells have these epigenetic aberrations. And through that time course study, um, identified when those aberrations appear. And we could then, we got the first glimpse of seeing that these regions where we saw uh, epigenetic memory, when you reprogram themselves in the naive media, that epigenetic memories are raised. And I guess that's somewhat expected because there'd been previous work showing if you grow ES cells in naive media, you get this hypomethylated state, you lose genomic imprinting, um, you can kind of reprime those cells. Um, but so we, we did kind of expect that. But after we did this time course study, we then thought, well, this memory erasure happens really early in the naive programming process. And so what if we then take some cells and we take them from fibroblasts and we put them in the naive state very briefly to demethylate the genome a bit to erase that memory and then prime them, similar to what happens in embryonic development cells go through that demethylation process and then um, remethylate in the prime. So we set out to type, kind of emulate that. And what we found is that if you reprogram the cells that way, um, you can erase the epigenetic memory um, of iPS cells. We had a few cell lines there that consistently had strong epigenetic memory. So they were great candidates to see if we could erase that. Um, and it ended up working really well. Um, so there was a pretty big paper. Is there other aspects you want me to to touch on there? Yeah, maybe. Um, so you talked about those aberrations. What does it mean? Um, is it just like epigenetics marks scattered around uh, the the genome that are still there that, that are not completely erased, or or what does it exactly mean? Yeah, there's actually a few loci that like across studies are pretty consistent, where you had um, like pretty low methylation, and then you get yeah reprogram the cells and, and and some of these promoters and other regions become methylated 
during reprogramming and and in ways that we don't see in any of the embryonic stem cell lines that we profiled. Okay. But how long does it take, the reprogramming? Uh, so, the, tw like, so 21 days until you get into the passaging stage. Mm -hmm. um, well, what kind of experiments were you doing? Was it, again, ChipSeq and ATTACK and all those um, fancy epigenetic methods? Or did you change something from 2017 to, to this Nature paper? Yeah, so we didn't do the um, the OKSM ChipSeq in this paper. Mm -hmm. That had kind of been done in a couple of other studies, uh, not on the time course. But um, so we did whole genome DNA methylation profiling for the time course of reprogramming these human cell lines. And we did it first started out, did a couple of independent lines and did RNA-seq as well. And that was our first um, pass to have a look at it. Once we'd done that and we kind of had this idea that you could erase the epigenetic memory, we then um, went through and did some chip seek uh, for um, heterochromatin marks. We did some H3K9 trimethylation. And that came about through an analysis where we were looking at some of the differentially methylated regions where um, you had epigenetic memory and doing some enrichment tests and, and just looking around in the genome browser, we could see that a lot of these differentially methylated regions were clustering together um, in particular ways and looking through some of the work of, um, I think it was from Ken Zarat's lab, they had some data that indicated that some of this epigenetic memory was in late replicating regions. So I then went and dug around some publicly available data and um, looking at late replicating, late replicating regions and, um, and the nuclear lamina And then I overlaid some data, um, publicly available data for Lamin B1. Um, and it, we found that a lot of this epigenetic memory was enriched in these regions for Lamin B1. And then um, just and knowing that uh, H3K9 trimethylation also associates with those areas, um, we did some chip seek on that and then found that indeed that we do get this enrichment of uh, epigenetic memory in those regions. and. Funnily enough, it's a non-CG methylation that shows this kind of inverse patterns with the, the heterochromatin, which um, was this extra layer of data there to, to show us that the epigenetic memory was indeed in those, those regions. Um, we did some other follow-up experiments too um, with some uh, RNA-seq, attack-seq, and then again some uh, H3K9 chip-seq as well. So the classical image that you have of heterochromatin and stem cells is that, at least in my head, is that um, you have the em embryonic stem cell or the stem cell in general, and it has basically no heterochromatin, right? Because everything needs to be expressed and it still needs to go into the lineages and it needs to be di differentiated. And then as they differentiate, the cells accumulate the heterochromatin in those regions where the genes are still not needed and still not expressed. So how is the difference in heterochromatin from the true stem cells or the embryonic stem cells and those induced stem cells, is there a, a big difference in, 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 in terms of rate of heterochromatin or is it just comparable? Uh, they are different. Now, um, with the, uh, the reprogrammed cells, there are some that when reprogrammed do very much look like embryonic stem cells, but not all. Um, we have definitely uh, several cell lines where you would see Parts of the heterochromatin 
um, that were maintained through reprogramming that were specific to the cell type of origin. So if we took some fibroblasts and profiled H3K9 trimethylation and then profiled the IPS cells from those and then compared that to embryonic stem cells, Although most of the heterochromatin was remodeled, there were large domains, you know, a couple of megabases um, in some cases, where you get this retained um, heterochromatic memory that was highly reproducible, and um, which was also reflected in the the non-CG methylation uh, data as well. So yeah, indeed they are. Um, most of the heterochromatin is remodeled, but uh, not all of it, and not in all cases, but. We showed if you do this transient naive reprogramming, the method we proposed in that nature paper, uh, that does indeed reset the heterochromatin. Hmm. So since 2021, you are now running your own lab. And I guess you, <laughs> you have submitted quite a number of grant proposals since then. <laughs> so my, my usual question is, what would you have written in a grant proposal that you would have submitted or would submit tomorrow? Or... As you're uh, setting up a new lab, maybe you can talk about what you are working on right now and what you have written in grant proposals. <laughs> sure, yeah. So I'm in the in the beginning stages of uh, starting a um, an epigenetics group at the moment, working in indigenous genomics. Actually, so I work under a much bigger umbrella of a researcher, Alex Brown, who has a, a pretty large group, and so I've started out there. Um, uh, so I'm currently working in this. Uh, space of indigenous genomics with um, indigenous Australian samples, uh, leading a pretty large longitudinal study focused on cardiometabolic conditions such as type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and chronic kidney disease. And we have over 1,200 participants in our study, and we're doing a massive multi-omics um, study with genome-wide DNA methylation, whole genome sequencing, RNA-seq, proteomics, and metabolomics. Like I said, we have over 1,200 people and we actually have a five-year follow-up with the same individuals. Um, and this population are very genetically diverse um, and they disproportionately suffer from a lot of chronic diseases. Um, so we're really wanting to develop biomarkers and understand the molecular basis of a lot of this. So uh, currently on the grant horizon, um, Much of my work is trying to develop epigenetic biomarkers for some of these conditions. But before we even get there, we need to understand the genetic influences on DNA methylation because there is a bit of work out there showing the genetic impacts on methylation, but not a lot of it's with whole genome data. And like I said, we've got a really diverse population. Actually, a couple of people from our group just had two nature papers last month on the um, the Aboriginal genomes of Australia, showing how diverse they are. So it's it's going to be a great model for understanding the genetic impacts on methylation and, um, and then moving forward into developing epigenetic biomarkers. So much of my grants at the moment are in that space. But funnily enough, when you have this much data and are doing this much multiomics, you need a lot of compute power and When you're working with human samples, you have all these privacy issues and um, having data sovereignty and giving people ownership over their data and control of how it's used. Uh, some of my work has actually been trying to get funding to build the computer systems that can actually do this kind of large integrative genomics analyses. 
Yeah, I can imagine that. And then you need people to run all those analyses. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely in that process now. I really do enjoy the bioinformatics side of things, and it, mm -hmm. it, it is a real it's a real pleasure to be training people in that area now. And I think DNA methylation is in the world of bioinformatics one of the more challenging um, marks to study. Um, I think misunderstood by a lot of people, um, but it, 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 it's really good now, like kind of training the next generation mm -hmm. and doing a, all this whole genome DNA methylation stuff that I learned while I was in Ryan's lab. So for the last 36 minutes, we have been on a journey through your scientific career. Did we miss something important or would you like to add something? No, I think, think we've covered everything there. I can't, I can't think of anything <laughs> at the moment. Okay. To finish, could you give us a brief summary of your most important finding? Yeah, I think definitely the most important finding was um, in that Nature paper that uh, you mentioned. It was the discovery of this um, this method where we could erase uh, epigenetic memory in iPS cells. That was a really long-standing problem for more than a decade from when it was first discovered. There are a lot of uh, labs and people out there that really didn't think that epigenetic memory was a problem. So we spent a lot of years uh, comprehensively characterizing the nature of epigenetic memory, showing that it did have an impact, um, showing that it had a functional impact, and most importantly, showing that it could be corrected. So um, you know, that paper's only been out there for, um, I don't even think, six months yet. So time will tell uh, whether people actually adopt that method and, and whether it makes a real impact. But um, that's probably definitely my uh, my most proud discovery from my career so far. Thank you, Sam, for your time and for being on the show. Oh, no worries. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.